Hello, I'm Doug, and welcome to the Crew of Japan podcast, a weekly podcast where we take you on audio journeys through Japanese culture. This time on Crew of Japan podcast. Welcome back to our podcast. This episode goes out to all of our martial arts fans out there. Anyone who knows me knows that martial arts have had a profound impact on my life, dating back to my high school days when I was a pudgy little teenager looking to dabble in martial arts. That step outside of my comfort zone led to 20 years, no, over 20 years of commitment. There were a few breaks along the way, but a long-term commitment nonetheless to martial arts of Kenjutsu. That interest in Kenjutsu would eventually lead me to step out of my own comfort zone once again while on jet to explore Kendo. While my journey with Kendo only lasted a little over a year, it was a great introduction to the sport. Or martial art, we'll discuss that later on. So I'm definitely not qualified to give you, our devoted listeners, an intro lesson into Kendo. But lucky for you, we have someone who is. Enter Alexander Bennett, professor at Kansai University, author of numerous publications, holder of multiple leadership positions on various international Budo-related committees and organizations, and a seventh don in Kendo. Alex graciously joined us for a deep dive, no, a super deep dive into the world of Kendo, from the history behind the sword in Japan, to daily routines of Kendoka, or practitioners of Kendo, and so much more. Whether you were a devoted martial artist, or someone with passing knowledge of martial arts thanks to Karate Kid, this episode will captivate you from the start to finish. Now let's jump into the interview. Hajime! We have a special guest, Alexander Bennett, or Alex Bennett. I know him because I'm a huge fan of Japanese literature. So Alex, thank you for coming on. I've been reading a bunch of your books, whether they were translations or you wrote them. So I'm a big fan of your literature. But you are a man of many hats. You're a translator, you're an author, you're a college professor, you are vice president of the International Niigata Federation, seventh dawn in Kendo. What hat do you not wear? The sleep hat, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we all, I think we all know how that is, wearing the, the no sleep hat. The struggles. The struggles. <laughs> Yes, but thank you so much for coming on and talking with Doug and I. Both of us are really big fans of Japanese martial arts, and Doug, you actually did kendo, so you're going to be yeah. a good person to utilize for this oh, episode. Uh, as we were talking about in our pre-interview talk, when Jen brought this up, I was super thrilled. I was excited to shoot the, ooh, I almost said the shoot the S word, shoot the breeze. About, <laughs> there you <laughs> go. Keep it PG. I uh, shoot the breeze about, you know, just martial arts, kendo, sword, history, you know, all that stuff is just yes. really interesting to me. But before we jump into that, we usually have a, a question that we start our interviews off with, with our guests. Since we are a New Orleans-based podcast, we like to know. If you have a connection to New Orleans, whether that's you actually been there before, or if you haven't, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear New Orleans? Right. Well, I I haven't been to New Orleans, but uh, certainly it's a, it's a place that I'm very interested in going to. And the first thing that pops into my mind is music. Nice. For yeah. Reasons which I don't need to explain to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. one of the top answers, you know, music, it jazz. Is, is. And, I'm sorry yeah. I couldn't come up with anything more original. No, but, no, no. I feel like that's a really good, con- music is really a good connection for like cross-cultural exchange and yeah. yeah. yeah it's a big a connection, one. I think. A lot of it people is. are drawn 
not just Japan, but around the world, are drawn to New Orleans for that music connection.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it is a, a language in and of itself. Yeah. yeah. So I believe. And as you say, music is just, it just crosses every boundary, doesn't it? It、so、does. Yeah. It I've, does. I've been to the States quite a few times. In fact, I've just been told by my university that I have to go to Washington, D.C. at the end of May as well.、Right. So for work reasons, I end up going over to the States probably about once a year. If not、nice. twice a year.、Um, so, I certainly want to put New Orleans on, on my list of places to visit at some stage, that's for sure. And we would love to、When、have you. When you're flying <laughs> into DC at the end of May, I'll be flying out of DC to go to Tokyo. We can high five on the way back. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be a long flight. I'm not looking forward to it with two kids. I'm going to go. But to get us back on track of the subject for today, We do like to start off by like, asking our guests, you know, what's their Japan journey? So, for you, Alex, how did you get interested in Japan to begin with? And then, inevitably, like, ending up there and having all these interests and being really involved, honestly.、Um, I would love to just hear your story. Well, I guess it really started way back in the early 1980s. And at the time, I'm really giving away my age now. I was, a, I was a young teenager. And Japan was sort of making waves around the world as this new economic superpower. Or the term in the day was、uh, yeah. economic animal. That, that、yes. was.、Uh, <laughs> things, you know, Japan was like, you know, riding this wave of prosperity. And at the same time, in New Zealand, where I came from, or I come from, New Zealand was sort of going through a little bit of a, an economic slump. I was still only 12. 13 years old at the, at the time, but、uh, thinking ahead like we did in those days, you know, what do I want to do、uh, when I grow up? And I thought, well, looking at what's happening with Japan, maybe if I learned the Japanese language, I could put that to good use in some kind of high fluting career and something and make a lot of money and live happily ever after. You know, that was pretty much <laughs> where I started. It all works out, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, but at, at the time, we were getting a lot of Japanese tourists into New Zealand. It was a kind of a tourist boom happening. So, you know, I, I could, and New Zealand being a, you know, it was a popular tourist destination for the Japanese. And so、mm-hmm. I could see Japanese all, you know, every day walking around my city. And, and it just so happened that when I went to high school, and I'm not quite sure how it works in the States, but in New Zealand, high school starts at the age of 13. And so I guess it's like your junior high. Sort of level. We have a junior high, call them intermediate, and that starts at 11.、Uh, okay. So 11 and 12, and then 13, you're at high school. At high schools in New Zealand, foreign languages is usually, in those days as it is today, usually on offer. But most of the, the languages in my day that people were studying at high school would be French or German, or maybe Russian. They even had Latin back then,、wow. um, which Are wonderful languages to learn. Any language is wonderful to learn because it really broadens your horizons in so many ways. But it's not exactly useful when you're living on the other side of the world from Europe. Right. Anyway, if you go to Europe, most people you, you know, can get by in English anyway. And so I didn't really see any benefits in terms of practical benefits from learning these languages. But it just so happened that my thoughts of what I'm going to do in the future and how it'd be good to be involved with Japan. And And the, the high school that I went to was one of the very few places in New Zealand at the time that actually had Japanese language 
tuition. Okay. And so it was just very fortuitous and wonderful timing for me. So as soon as I went to high school, I was able to start learning Japanese. And because I was pretty motivated for that subject in particular, I got fairly good at it. Well, good as in New Zealand high school level good. Yeah. At it. <laughs> and it wasn't long before my, my teachers at the high school said, well, you know, if you're really that keen, the only way you're going to get really good, like proper good at Japanese, is if you go over there. So they planted a little seed in my head and <laughs> I decided that yeah, maybe that was the thing to do. So I talked it over with my mother and father. And when I was 16, I was selected for a Rotary Club exchange. Oh, nice. Yeah, cool. between a club in Christchurch and a club in uh, Chiba, uh, Chiba Prefecture in Japan. So just before I turned 17, I was able to come over to Japan for a one-year exchange where I would just go to a typical Japanese high school. And that's really where it all started, I guess you could say. I mean, I had the warming up at high school in New Zealand, but as soon as I got here, that was, that was the real life-changing moment. So the, the Rotary Club Exchange, when I was teaching in, uh, on the JET program, my apartment was right next to a high school in our town. And they actually had a Rotary Club Exchange student at that school. And so I would see him walking to and from the school. And I think he was at the time, I think he had graduated high school in Canada. And uh, it was kind of a year in between high school and college or university. So he was kind of doing just like, you know, for fun. When you were on the Rotary program for that exchange, did you actually take part in classes or were you more just kind of there, just experiencing and there more so for the social aspect and, and the extracurriculars and everything like that? I was basically the second exchange student that had ever been to my school. And when I was there, <clears throat> I was the only one. And I think uh, there's a school of about 3,000 students, and I was the only sort of foreigner there. And I was basically chucked in the deep end. <laughs> so I was sitting the same classes as my peers, uh, not having a clue what was I going can imagine. on. I <laughs> <Sure. laughs> I just sit there, uh, you know, just reading books or trying to follow. I mean, I could help out in the English class. <laughs> which, of course. I'm sure you were enlisted in the English club and, and all those activities, right? Well, no, actually what, what happened was um, in New Zealand as well, I'd always been a fairly avid sportsman. In particular, I was uh, really into my soccer. Okay. Soccer was my thing. And when I went to Japan, I thought, okay, I'd really want to continue with my soccer. I've been doing it since I was a little kid. And, and my high school, I played for my high school team. And my high school got you know, top three in New Zealand. So we're fairly competitive. And I wanted to continue with my soccer in Japan. And when I got to my high school, they all expected me to belong to some club as a part of the school experience. And so I thought, oh, all right, we'll go and check out the soccer club. And to my horror, I discovered that they didn't actually have any grass in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> Get a little dirt field. These grass that you're allowed to stand on and run on and play soccer on, you know. It was like there's the school ground, Doug, as I'm, I'm sure you can. Uh, oh, yeah. The your coté, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's like the Gobi Desert, you know, and it's um, <laughs> just gravel. And it's like, how the hell are they playing soccer on that? Um, you know, you do a sliding tackle and you shave half your leg off, you know, and it's like, yeah. <laughs> I, I had to think about it. 
And my host mother, I had five host families in, in the uh, during the year that I was here, uh, that I was there. But uh, my first host mother, she said, well, you're in Japan, you're here for a year. Why don't you do something Japanese, like a Japanese sport of some sort? And I thought, well, you know, that makes perfect sense. And in those days, there was a, a movie called The Karate Kid, uh, which has become very popular again recently, thanks to Cobra Kai. Yeah. <laughs> karate Kid was, was big. And um, if there was a karate club at my high school, I would have been in like Flynn. I would have loved to have done karate. But karate is actually a kind of a, comparatively speaking, a bit of a minor martial art, funnily enough, in, in Japan. That's not the, not the case outside of Japan, of course. But um, yeah. so my, my high school didn't have a karate club. It had a judo club and a kendo club. And so it's like well, traditional Japanese martial arts it's one or the other the judo club there were very uh, it was a very small club there was only about six members and it was kind of gloomy <laughs> next door to the judo club was the kendo club and there was about 30 uh, members and they were just going crazy you know it was just full of energy screaming and yelling and attacking each other with incredible vigor and it sort of shocked me because it sort of looked really violent and it looked like it <laughs> no idea what the hell they were doing except whacking each other with bamboo sticks but it, it was something intriguing about it at the same time so i thought okay well i'll give it a go and there's no such thing as giving it a go at a Japanese high school. As soon as I stepped foot in the dojo and uh, picked up a bamboo sword and was taught very basic movements that all beginners get started with, it was assumed that I had become a fully-fledged member of the club, which I <laughs> believe in my head, but everybody else seemed to think that. The thing is with Japanese clubs, which is very different to New Zealand, and this was my first real big culture shock, I guess you could say, is that the clubs, if it's soccer or baseball or kendo, they practice seven days a week. There's yeah. no days off. You know, <laughs> it's just full on, and it's really hard. And so I stuck at it for a week and then thought, you know, this is not for me. I was getting blisters all over, you know, my, my feet and my hands and I was hurting in places that I didn't even know I had muscles and, and it just all seemed so difficult and, and, you know, I didn't, I really couldn't work out what I was supposed to be doing. And so I went to the teacher and I said, you know, thank you, Sano Sensei was his name, but yeah, I don't think it's for me. So I'd like to quit. And he said, no, you can't. <laughs> You're not allowed. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Hotel California? <laughs> okay, so <I> <laughs> there ain't no chicken out, sunshine. So I was yeah. sort of, you know, press ganged into it in a way. And But what, what happened as a result of that, although I wasn't keen on kendo, it was actually my peers in the kendo club, they really looked after me and helped me out a lot. And uh, I got sort of, even in the space of a week, I got quite close to them in a strange sort of way because they, they would help me find my way home by bicycle and they were told by the sensei to look after the foreigner and make sure he doesn't get into trouble and so <laughs> they, they sort of really sort of uh, helped me out a lot and so I became quite close to them and it was really because of my friends in the kendo club that I that I stuck at it but then after about six months and it really took that long uh, when I started to work out what kendo is all about and my you know my language uh, was improving not that I could tell at the time but I, I was I was taking in more than I realized and I was putting the pieces together and working it out 
and I started to get a little bit more enthusiastic about my kendo, even though it was seven days a week and some days I just really didn't want to go. And then after, yeah, um, after about the six months, mark a few things happened that sort of uh, solidified my resolve and i became a for want of a better uh, way of expressing it a a total fanatic uh, for kendo and that again was another kind of life changing moment because it's uh that was in 1987 and it's because of kendo that i'm actually still here um all those years later so never did i think that joining that little kendo club at the high school would be you know, the, one of the defining moments in, in my in my life. It wasn't so much choosing Japanese language in high school. It was the kind yeah. of... <laughs> like yeah. Like, you thought, like, this is the way I'm changing my future with studying Japanese. I mean, yeah. technically, it did kind of send you on that path, but... Um... Yeah, it was the gateway, but not, like, the full-blown <laughs> way that you went. But that's an awesome story. Yeah, I love cool. that. I love that. Well, you spoke of kendo. But for our listeners who may not be familiar with the fundamentals and, you know, what kendo may be, could you like describe what kendo is and maybe like the history behind this martial arts? Because, you know, you say that's a sport, but, you know, from literature, we know that wasn't always a sport. So kind of give us like a little background. Yeah, sure. When you put sport and martial arts in the same sentence people get very touchy about it and you know, I have a lot of opinions about that as well but I won't bore you it will turn into a big university lecture which I'm sure that's what you don't want but <laughs> the history of kendo I mean swords have always been an important part of Japanese culture in terms of they became symbolic of samurai uh, status Even before that, swords were kind of magical, special objects to the Japanese since, you know, from since they were first introduced into Japan from China in the fifth or sixth centuries, or even perhaps a little bit before then. And it was after that that the sword developed into a sort of a unique Japanese version, a single-edged curved blade that everybody knows now. Uh, and refers to as a katana. So swords have always been uh, kind of symbolic of imperial legitimacy, for example, or samurai rule, or and, and eventually even became referred to as the soul of the samurai in that it represented the independent spirit of the, of the holder. So naturally, sword techniques were something that evolved over time throughout the centuries. And in particular, if we look at uh, the 14th, uh, maybe 15th century, in what is referred to as the medieval age of, of Japanese history, we start to see the rise of schools, special schools that specialized in the martial arts. And that's, they were precisely that, they were martial arts depending on the school they might specialize in a different kind of weapon but the sword was always central to these schools these schools are referred to as ryuha in japanese in english i translate them as a a tradition of something or other Mm -hmm. so you get various different schools and they all have ryu attached as a suffix afterwards like the jikishin kage ryu or the onohaito ryu or the Kashima Shinden, uh, Shin Kage is one, is one that I do, Katori Shintoryu, etc., etc. There's many, many, uh, eventually there turned out to be hundreds of these schools, but they really started back in around about the 14th century, or the really early ones. And each school was kind of different. 
uh, they had their own sort of special secret techniques that were inspired by some divine teaching that sort of flowed down into the founder and then you know that that uh, that founder would become famous throughout the land for his prowess and uh, he would get followers that would want to uh, absorb this divine knowledge and this uh, incredible skill and so learning swordsmanship sort of became attached to if you excelled in it it would provide some career openings for you as well. Uh, you might get some warlord, a daimyo, who would want you to come into his service so that you could uh, teach his warriors um, the secrets of your school and so on and so on. But traditional swordsmanship, which is usually referred to as, uh, there are many words, but to keep it simple, kenjutsu. Practicing it was usually a very dangerous situation. I wouldn't call it a pastime. <laughs> it was it was a career path, but it could be dangerous. And you know they would use live blades or wooden swords for practicing their techniques. And you know accidents happen even in the in the course of training. You could be seriously injured or even die. Let alone in the real standoffs and the duels that they engaged in to test themselves. And so it was it was a very precarious occupation put it that way as time went on japan went through its uh, turbulent time known as the warring states period and uh, eventually japan was unified and became a peaceful nation once again um it had a past in the in the heian period it was peaceful and then you know as the as the samurai came to the fore then you know war was always a, a fact of life and then after 1600 when Tokugawa Ieyasu established his military regime known as the Tokugawa Bakufu which started i think in 1603 then basically fighting and wars uh and not you know large scale and even individual contests were outlawed because it was the Tokugawa Bakufu his main ob objective was to keep the peace somehow and so the Tokugawa period which starts from the, you know the early 1600s and goes right the way through to the Meiji Restoration in 1868 was really a uh, you know a time of peace throughout the land referred to as Tenkataihe or peace under the realm or in the realm under the heavens and because it was peace the samurai who had established their position in the top echelon of society had to kind of redefine their their role in society. Mm -hmm. What's the point in having professional warriors in, in a time of peace? Right. And with that, their martial arts also had to evolve. And the martial arts themselves, they kind of became very intellectual they almost became pacified as well. One of the really interesting things about this period was that the samurai had to show proof that they were still keeping themselves militarily prepared should something happen, but they were keeping out of trouble at the same time. And one way that they could show that they're earning their salaries by, you know, being professional warriors was to get certification from a martial arts school saying that blah 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 is training very hard and has reached this level of proficiency sort of like a school report in a way mm -hmm. and so because of this the number of martial arts schools in the Tokugawa period proliferated there are lots and lots of them because there was a market demand which is kind of a paradox in a way because it was a time of peace right and so yeah. <laughs> with, the, with the rise in number of these schools they have to make themselves more attractive to potential customers, these various samurai from, from different domains. 
and they would come up with these rather bizarre training methodologies and kata uh, techniques that were very impractical, but they looked good. And they would come up with these uh, very arcane theories and philosophies, and they were sort of like almost pseudo-religious groups, like a cult religion in a way. So as Japan progressed through this time of peace, the martial arts themselves became very removed from the practicalities of, of combat. And so by the time we uh, reached the 1700s, so that's about 100 years down the track, there was a, you know, a lot of criticism. I don't know what they called the blogosphere back then, but it was, you know, it was a bit... <laughs> The early modern equivalent <laughs> the of uh... <laughs> <laughs> about what a lot of crap all this swordsmanship is, and blah blah. So and so school is really really bad, and this is you know this is terrible. This is this is they're forgetting what true swordsmen's all about. And one way that this problem was overcome was a number of prominent swordsmen developed special training equipment, which involved a protective head covering, gauntlets body protector and bamboo swords and what this meant was that swordsmen could actually practice with each other now with full contact sparring that means that you could actually attack somebody and try out all of these techniques that you've been taught through the cutter and and so on and see if they actually work and see how practical they really were without fear of killing your opponent or or being killed and as this trend started to take root throughout the 1700s and the 1800s, people started to realize that, hey, this is really a lot of fun. It's basically fencing, right? Um, they right. could actually fight each other. And that meant that it actually brought, you know, it introduced into it a, a kind of a, a competitive aspect where you could fight somebody. You would know who the winner was and who the loser was. And that gave rise to uh, to the practice of Mushashugyo once again, where, where samurai from various domains would carry their practice equipment with them around a country. They would get special passports or permission to go and practice with swordsmen from another school. That served two purposes. One, it was a lot of fun and you yeah. get to taste the local cuisine and jump into an onsen at the end of the day and have a few sakes with the, the, the people that you've been fighting. But it's also a great way of exchanging information. So in this sense, the, the, the development of the armor and the bamboo swords, it sort of introduced a sporting aspect to Kenjutsu. And also it became very social in that uh, you could use that to travel like, like we do today. Like when I go to the States, I always take my kendo equipment with me. Uh, not that I'm spying on anybody, but we go there and we practice <laughs> and we have a few beers afterwards and we exchange information. So the samurai were doing exactly the same thing from around about the 1700s and the 1800s. This is really where the, the kendo that I do today and that, you know, uh, we do in Japan and around the world, really the form that it is can be traced back to this, this time, the 1700s and the 1800s. There's so much more history that I could go into, but uh, just, you know, I, I'll, I'll leave the, the, uh, the hardcore historical stuff there if you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're going to touch on a little bit of, uh, you know, like what kind of went into it. Yeah, going, like uh, more you know, details of Kendo. Minutes, yeah. But before we jump too far into that, yeah. you had mentioned the ranking system and, and how they kind of introduced this as a way of measuring and staying on top of their craft. And Jen introduced you earlier as a seventh on of uh, Kendo. A lot of people in the States know with martial arts, you have your belts. In, I don't know if that's just, it's not exclusive to the U.S., but I know it. in the U.S., the belts are kind of like your 
give your white, your yellow, your orange, your, 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 that's your levels, right? What is the ranking system like with kendo? How does that match up to what other martial arts have? It's changed a little bit over the years, but the, the current Dan system that we have now in kendo is just over 100 years old, actually, and it was copied off judo. I mean, traditionally you used to have special licenses and, you know, in these old schools, but judo was created by a guy called Kano Jigoro in 1882, and he studied various styles of jujitsu, mm -hmm. and he took all the good bits into and created his own style, which he called judo instead of jujitsu, and the do means way. So he was the, the way of yawara, or the way of ju, which means that it's not just the techniques, but it's actually, it's an educational path. It's a vehicle for self-perfection, as well as being a vehicle for self-defense, and also a sport. And some of the things that he did, he modernized traditional martial arts, made it into a rational teaching system so that practitioners could understand their progress and they could create something to aim for. And he introduced the, the Dan grading system, Shodan, Nidan, Sandan, so that's first Dan, second Dan, third Dan. Below that we have the Q, so you're climbing up a ladder as you get better, as you train more, as you get a few years under your belt, you naturally get higher up in the rankings. So this was kind of uh, monumental sort of thing for martial arts in general because other martial arts saw well as we modernize as we become modern sports and also a part of the uh, the education system in japan as part of the physical education we're going to make it so that lots of people can do it and it's easy to understand and they have objectives things that they can aim for and keep them interested and keep them practicing and so this, in Kendo, this all happened about a hundred years ago. It became quite modern. So the modern ranking system that we have now uh, is based on what Kano Jigoro introduced into Judo. Um, he, Kano Jigoro actually originally got this off the traditional Japanese chess games of Go and Shogi, which had the, had the uh, ranking. Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. But uh, at the moment, as it stands at the moment in Kendo, we go up the highest rank is 8th Dan, Hachidan. And in order to reach that grade, you have to have held seventh dan for 10 years at least, okay. a minimum 10 years. And then you are allowed to go and sit the examination for Hachidan. And the, the pass rate for the Hachidan exami examination is, it depends on, on the year, but around about 0.3%. Wow. So, 0.3. Yeah, that's incredibly. Yeah, on, on, a, on, a, on, a good, on a good day, it might get up to 0.5%, you know. All right. Um, <laughs> so I, I actually have the seventh, uh, seventh Dan, and at the moment, yeah. uh, my focus uh, is the Hachidan examination, and that's what gets me out of bed in the morning every day and into the dojo to train. If, if you don't mind me asking, how long have you had seventh Dan designation for? I have had seventh done for thirteen years now. Okay, yeah. So you could take yeah. the you could theoretically take the examination whenever you feel that you yeah. you're at that level. You're right. That's right. Yeah, like yeah. when okay. you feel prepared. Yeah. Um. Well, you. I. It's held two times a year. So I've been going and learning as I go about yeah. how deficient I truly am. So <laughs> it's a very humbling experience, and and what it does is it provides. Again, you know, it gives you motivation, gives you the impetus to really keep studying. I'm, I'm, I'm 53 years old now, and, you know, I'm training just as hard, if not harder and more, 
than what I was in, when I was in my early 20s and, and you know, 30s. It's just, it's a lifelong pursuit and you've got to remain humble. Yeah. Uh, you've got to remain open-minded. You've got to, you've got to use your brain. Uh, you've got to use your body and um, you've got to put everything that you have you, you know, your, your heart, your soul, and everything goes into, into this pursuit. So, I mean, for me now, it's, I can never leave Japan. <laughs> <laughs> but the big difference between kendo and other martial arts, I mean, other martial arts, they have, you know, the same darn system, but, you know, I, I think kendo is recognized as being, you know, the, the hachidan and kendo being probably the most difficult exam out of any of them. Other martial arts go up to 10th dan, for example. Um, and that, when you get to that level, it's kind of an honorary sort of thing. But uh, kendo 8th dan is like, you've got to be at the top of your game and at the top of everybody else. Yeah. We don't have belts in yeah. kendo, um, so when you go up against someone, you you have no idea what grade they are. You don't know if they're a shodan or. Oh, a that's not like pre-announced or anything. Oh no, 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 no. Oh. As soon as you stand up against them, you know that they're either really, really good or they're not so good. You know, it's just as soon as you face off, you know that mm. person or the way they move. You know all of the non-verbal cues. They're they're key. You can feel it all. Yeah. And you stand there with your shinai against their shinai, tip to tip, just having a kind of a conversation with the bamboo, just to see you know what where they, where they're tense, where they're relaxed, and uh, where they're confident, where they're not so confident, and how they how they're going to react to certain things. So it's like having a conversation, and then eventually it'll like a lightning burst in a cloud out of nowhere bang something happens and <laughs> somebody watching it they have absolutely no idea what what just happened but for the two people involved it's mm -hmm. like it's, you know it's a defining moment you know oh, yeah. whether you had your ass kicked or not <laughs> <laughs> so we mentioned earlier I, I had done kendo for about a year here in new orleans i do uh, kenjutsu kind of a, a hybrid of different things. They do a little bit of EI, we do a little bit of uh, sports chambara, we do a lot of, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of different aspects of it learned in one kind of setting. And with sports chambara, it's kind of like a, you have less equipment and you can make more contact and then the weapons that you use are not as solid as a yep. kishinai. You can go all out if you wanted to mm. and not have to worry about severely injuring your opponent. Yeah, Like you were saying, that conversation you're having, it happens even with this chambara sword. I assist with this instructing one of the other instructors we stand there we'll just stare at each other for like two minutes we're just like trying to we're just looking we know each other so well we've been fighting for 20 years and we know each other so well we're just we know we're just messing around we'll do crazy stuff just to try to throw each other off yeah. <laughs> but it's it's that that yeah, I can't explain it. But well, no, you no, know, Alex as soon as, it. Alex, yeah. you even said, like, not only do you have to, like, physically be, like, you know, in the moment, but, like, mm -hmm. mentally, too. It's a mental game. Mm -hmm. well, absolutely. I mean, one way of uh, explaining kendo is it's very much like moving zen, okay? Because more than more than the physical side, it's the, it's the mental side that's, that's really important. To give you an example, I'm 53, as I said before, you know, I'm, I'm still very physically active and still fairly athletic. I should stop drinking so much beer, but, you know, um, <laughs> in spite you of me that. both. <laughs> <laughs> so every, every morning at the university, I'll, I'll go and fight the students. 
here. And Kansai University, where I work, is a fairly、um, well-known school for kendo. It's a very strong team. So the kids, you know, they're nineteen, twenty, twenty-one. Very, very fast, very athletic, and very skilled as well. And a lot of them have been kind of recruited to come to the to the university because of their skills. And when I fight them, I mean they're they're over thirty years younger than than I am, but、um, I don't have any problem whatsoever dealing with them at all. You know, I can kick their backsides, and I <laughs> I do with with glee every morning because they deserve it. They absolutely deserve it, but it's like, well, how can that be when you're so much older and slower than they are? And then I will go up against my sensei, against my teacher who is in his eighties now, and he will just absolutely kick my backside. <laughs> you know, just absolutely crush me. That's one of the you know the most incredible things about kendo. It's hard to explain, but when when you're standing up against this old man and he just Moves just a little bit, and suddenly you 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 find that you're up against the wall without even knowing it. It's it's something quite remarkable going on. And what what is 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 your physical strength and your speed, dexterity goes down. It gets compensated for by your mental strength and your well, your experience. And yeah, I, I hesitate to use the word spiritual strength because that that gets misconstrued a lot. But there's there's no other way to really explain that that idea of key that's. Coming out of you, and that's just something that develops over time. It's like a like a wine, you know, a fine、yeah. wine that gets better as it matures, right? And kendo is the same. And what what you find is as you get older, you can read all the cues on the surface of your opponent. You can read what's going on by looking at their eyes. You can pick up various habits and traits that your character comes out in your kendo. So if you have a good understanding of the person that you have in front of you, you can control the conversation. Okay. The older you get, the more eloquent you get. The more、uh, attuned you become to to the various the, the body language and the you know the various、uh, nonverbal cues and the verbal cues, which I'm、uh, you know I'm trying to equate it with just normal conversation, right? And at the same time, you you are able, well you are able to identify strengths and weaknesses. In your opponent, and by identifying the weaknesses, you can then、uh, exploit them and utilize them, and so you can, without using speed, without using strength, you can basically just boom, go in there and hit your opponent on the head, and they'll go, "What the hell just happened?" And <laughs> it's because you are unaware of that weakness that has just been exploited so brilliantly by your opponent, who's so much more experienced and and in advance. So, part of the process of your own personal development in kendo is not only learning how to identify the weaknesses like surprise,、uh, surprise and fear and doubt and hesitation and and all of these things, but at the same time also trying to expunge them from yourself because your opponent's trying to do exactly the same thing to you. And so, as you get older, you become more resolute. There are less openings that are revealed to your opponent, so they're trying to think what. What the hell can I do? And while they're thinking it, you just go and hit them.、Um, and also, in terms of movement, the older you get, the the more refined your movement becomes. There's、mm. no superfluous movement, so there's nothing wasted. It's just bang, just identifying that moment. That's all you need to do. So what I'm finding,、uh, you know, my understanding of kendo every year that passes, it becomes deeper and deeper. 
and the you know the more time that passes the more i can see my opponent's personality through their kendo and i think my personality is it shows in my kendo but kendo is also de developing my personality is that kind of connection that means that for me now kendo is part of me mm -hmm. and uh, if i was to stop doing kendo if, for whatever reason kendo would never leave me because it really is a part of my being so that's why kendo is a path or the, the way of the sword it's something that uh, as you advance in, in years and your training and your experience it just becomes you um, but having said that there is no end to it either and I'm always, you know <laughs> he's in like, it for the long haul <laughs> yeah I'm always finding things that need to be tweaked or changed or or completely redone um, in that sense, it's kind of like a classic car. You know, you always have to replace parts, <laughs> sort of, yeah. to keep it running and on the, you know, uh, humming, humming nicely on the road. So, in that sense, it's, uh, you know, it's 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 a never-ending pursuit. That's awesome. Very poetic of you. Yeah. <laughs> you currently now, and I'm sure back then you did as well. You did like sparring practices, but like. Is it just sparring practices or like what is a practice regiment that one would do for kendo? You know, are there any kind of like strikes that you practice, have to practice or any kind of like movements that you have to practice before you even think about sparring with someone? Absolutely. I mean, you have to learn the basics and that's like any sport, of course. Mm. Um, and the basics in, in martial arts are referred to as kihong or the fundamentals and What's interesting about the basics is as you get older and better and uh, more skilled at doing all these fancy techniques and stuff, you always go back to the basics. Your basics is your bread and butter. And so you'll learn uh, how to use the sword and your body and your mind as one consolidated entity. It all has to come together. And in kendo terms, we call that ki, ken, tai. Ichi. So ki is your, your energy, your spirit. Ken is your sword. Tai is your body. And ichi means together. So everything must be together. And in order to do that, you have to do kihon ad nauseum. Okay, like over <laughs> and over and over. And that means the footwork and the basic strikes. In kendo, there are only four targets. There's a target to the head, which is called men to the wrist, which is called kote, to the body or torso, it's called do, and a thrust to the throat, which is called, we say, tsuki. And there's only four techniques, but there's lots of variations of these techniques. But we practice doing the main techniques just as they, as they are off the mark, just man, 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 over and over just a thousand times. And then we'll do uh, variations of them. And then we'll do um, other exercises which are not so much to develop the kiken tai ichi or your, the use of your hands and, to relax, um, and, and so on, but uh, to build your spirit and to, make, to toughen you up and make you more resilient. Things like kagari geko, for example, it's just like literally translated attack practice, where you just let go and you just attack everything that you can for as long as you can, as loudly as you can, as vigorously as you can. And then when you completely run, can you, can you imagine doing a, a hundred meters uh, sprint? 
no. screaming all the way as you do it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know if there's kendo practice going on somewhere near you. Oh yeah, you, yeah, you will sure. hear it. It's very loud. You will hear it. You could be halfway across the street. You will still hear it. That screaming, yeah. the ki, it's everything. crazy. The yeah. stamina you would need yep. for that. And then just when you think, oh, finally finished, the person that you're training with says, no, 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 not enough, not enough sunshine. You have to do more, and it's like <gasps> you have to pick yourself <laughs> up from the floor somehow, and and you just. In the end, you, you, you just get in the zone. Um, people talk about runner's high, mm. but there's definitely a kendo high out there as well. Yeah. But it's hard. So the training, sometimes sometimes it's tedious because you, it's rote body memorizer. You have to remember the stuff with your body. You have to be able to make it second nature. Sometimes it's very technical. You really have to use your brain and work out how a technique can be applied and then you, it works on one person, but it doesn't work on another person for some reason. You have to be able to analyze that and work it out. And then other times it's just like, right, this is just hardcore boot camp. Throw everything out the window and jump into it and, and see what happens kind of training as well. So there are many different aspects of it. But like I said, it doesn't matter how far you go and how good you get. You always come back to the basics. Yeah. And I remember when I was doing that one year I did it, and it's funny because I think one of the biggest reasons is that my landlord was the kendo teacher at the elementary school I taught at. <laughs> so after, so I, I, I saw them doing kendo. I was really interested when I first got on jet and I told him and he's like, oh, well, come join us. And, and it was just me beating up on my students that were like, you know, elementary school, like San Nensei, Yon Nensei, like fourth, third, fourth, fifth grade students. and. I didn't have anyone at kind of like the same height <laughs> or the yeah. same level. I just, I felt bad with like hitting my own students. And I was, none of them were bad kids. So it was like, oh, well, you're, you're actually a good student. I don't want to mess with you. But no, um, that was one of the hard part. But it was that whole repetition. Like it was two hours. You have your, yeah. your strikes, you practice your strikes. You, then you do like the, I forget what it's called, when you kind of jump back and forth. Hi, Asubu. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then you rotate and you fight and spar and all that stuff. But it was, yeah. I, I really missed the aspect of sparring yeah. more, I don't want to say aggressively, but yeah. I was holding back because yeah. I was fighting like children. And, and that yeah. was part of the reason why I yeah. did only do it for about a year. Yeah, yeah. To their disappointment, yeah. they were all mad with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing. I mean, sparring, to get back to your question, Jennifer, sparring comes right at the end. Yeah. And gotcha. so you really have to learn all of this stuff before you can do scar uh, sparring properly so that you, you know, you learn when you can go all out or when you need to hold back a little bit. Like, for example, when you're training with kids and stuff, you need to have that control. So sparring is the fun bit actually it can also be really hard but uh, it's the bit that you know it's kind of like the icing on the cake really but before you get to that level you've, you've got to do all uh, the the fundamental stuff yeah. first put well yeah and and so we talked about sparring and wanted to get a basic idea of what those rules are uh, the protocols for a match like how does the match start what are the basic rules how do you win is it one mm. point sparring is it three point sparring what does a match look like well, a match can vary depending on the, the circumstances, but generally speaking, while there are team matches and there are individual matches, let's just talk about the, just the basic individual match. Two people will bow to each other, they'll walk out, and they'll unsheath their swords and they'll go down into the song kill position. The referee, there are three referees, 
the head referee will go, Hajime, start. And then they stand up and they start fencing each other. The typical match is called Sambon Shobu, which means the first person to get two valid points is the winner. Or if one person gets one point and the other person gets no points by the time the time is up, which is usually about five minutes, then the person with one point is the winner. Or it can be a draw as well, it just depends on the on the circumstances. But in order to get the point, there's certain criteria that have to be met. And this is the hard bit about kendo. This is really hard. First of all, when you make the strike, I, I mentioned before, ki ken tai ichi. Okay, so your, your ki and your uh, sword and your body have to be together. So it can't just be a matter of sticking your hands out and touching the targets. You have to have your whole body into, into the attack. Now, when you strike, we use the shinai. I don't have a sh... Oh, give me a second. Okay. <laughs> Show and tell. Okay, I've got a shinai in my office here. Nice. I guess this is, a, this is a shinai. So when you strike the target, let's just say man. Okay, remember there's kote, there's also do, and there's also a thrust to the throat, but we'll just keep it with man for the explanation. Mm-hmm. You can see the length of the shinai here. This is the tip. Because okay, right up here, and this is the handle, so it's quite, kind of quite long, right? Yeah. It's almost um, like longer than your arm. If I stand up, I'm 170 centimeters tall. It's it's pretty tall. It comes up, yeah. comes up here, so it's it's quite it's quite big. Yeah, chest when you strike, Okay, you've got to be striking with your key and your ken and your tai all together, with the correct part of the shinai on the target, the sweet spot, sweet spot of the blade. That's called the monouchi to be striking. The target you have to be striking in full spirit so when you strike you've got to go you've got to shout out the target as you do it so that's man or if it's the wrist kote, do, tsuki. okay so that's um in full spirits as if you know you were aiming for that target okay it's striking the target accurately not out to the side okay to be a precise on hit. the target with yeah. the correct part of the shinai. Also, another important part here, and this is kind of difficult to see, but you can see we've got a, a string. Yeah, it's like a string. Yeah, it's like a like a little one-string banjo sort of thing, right? <laughs> the string is, is, signifies the back of yeah. the sword. So a Japanese sword only has one cutting edge, okay? So in the back of the sword, you can't cut with that. So the shinai, even though it's kind of cylindrical, is the same. So if the string... If that is on the bottom, that means that you're not cutting with the blade. Okay, so that's another condition that's got to be met. You've got to, the blade has got to be on the right angle. If you strike like this, then it's not going to count. And then after you've made the strike, you have to follow through and turn around and face your opponent and be ready again in case it wasn't a good strike. And we call this zanshin or lingering spirit. So striking the target's like 50%, but you've got to follow through and run back and then turn around ready to fight again. Okay, and you never let your guard down, ever. If you let your guard down, then your opponent's probably gonna strike you and yeah. then you'll end up losing. So you have to demonstrate through the zanshin that you are still very alert and you're ready for a counterattack or whatever should, should happen. So you can never lose focus. So if all of these criteria are met with that instantaneous bang that happens and the three referees go, mm, I like it, 
He had full spirit. He struck with good posture. His strike was accurate with the correct part of the blade. The blade angle was good. And he showed Zanshin or she showed Zanshin afterwards. So we will give the point. And then you go into the second point and it goes through the same thing. <laughs> and sometimes there's a lot of hitting that, go, that is going on and it looks like they're hitting the targets, but the referees aren't calling. Yeah. And So the referees will always call it if it hits. Yeah, if it hits with these criteria. And if it yeah. doesn't, think of it like this. Um, Americans, you'll know baseball, right? And yeah. so even though you're striking the ball, if you don't strike the ball properly, it's not going to be a home run, is it? You might get a hit. You, you might get a, a you know get to first base if you're lucky. Uh, in kendo, that might or might not be a point. If it's a home run, the yeah. flags will go up. But often it's the case, even though you're you know there's a lot of hitting and striking going on, it's kind of like a foul ball in baseball. So okay. if you're not hitting the ball properly, it's going to fly off, even though it's making contact, right? So the easiest way to explain, you know, even though they're, they're hitting each other, they're not counting. Just think of it as a foul ball in, in baseball. In order to do the refereeing, uh, you actually have to be a practitioner of kendo as well. I think uh, many sports, you can actually have umpires or referees that don't play that sport. Maybe they've studied just how to be a, a referee. They understand the rules and stuff. But in the case of kendo, every referee in kendo is somebody who is actually practicing kendo to a high level. And, yeah, you know, they might imagine. think of seventh dan or eighth dan because otherwise you just, you can't read before and you can't see what's happening during and you don't know how to interpret it afterwards as well. So that's one of the big differences perhaps with other sports. Kendo, the, the people who are adjudicating it are definitely high level practitioners in their own right. Yeah. And I think that was the hardest part for me when it came to sparring. Because with when I like I said I did sports chamber as like the sparring aspect of what I do. That, you know, if you get if you get a clean hit, you don't have to necessarily have a key eye or you don't have to necessarily follow through. If it's mm. a clean hit, that's going to be a point uh, where I think that was my struggle when it came to kendo. It was my adjusting from chambara to the kendo aspect of all of that all together, following through and then turning around and, mm. you know, making sure all of it was happening. Because there were so many times when I got a clean hit, I knew it was a hit. I knew it was a hit. Never got the point. I'm like, what's wrong? Like, I was yeah. getting so frustrated. I was like, what's going yeah. on here? And yeah. I didn't understand the Japanese explanation that was coming at me either. So I was like, why? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's one of the hard things. But I think that Zanshin, for example, you know, that follow through and how you hold yourself afterwards is one of the most important, not only in terms of it's one of the criteria for getting the point, but I think philosophically speaking, that's one of the most valuable lessons that you can learn in kendo as always having zanshin after whatever you do you're going to avoid screwing up a lot more uh, like a simple example is um i love to climb mountains as well and you know it's, it's common knowledge that um, most accidents that happen in the mountains are not on the way up but on the way down yeah and it's like the reason is you get up to the top and go yeah made it this is cool and then you sort of you sort of lose focus a little bit when you're going down because it's just a matter of getting back to the car park um, before it gets dark <laughs> and then you then you have an accident gravity um, kicks whereas, in <laughs> yeah but it should be the opposite so like getting up of course getting up to the top is really important but afterwards you really got to tighten up your kabuto straps and prepare for even more danger on the way way down yeah 
that kind of attitude or mentality is something that's very much, you know, you, it's difficult to understand, but after many years, it sort of becomes a part of you. I find that even when I'm driving, it's thanks to, you know, my sense of zanshin that's got me out of all sorts of trouble in the past. And yeah, just um, sometimes I'll leave my wallet or my phone somewhere, um, like in the back of a taxi, and then I'll kick myself for not having zanshin because I forgot <laughs> you know, important things because I was thinking about something else, you know, so it, it sort of, kind of, kind of yeah, it provides a paradigm for, you know, many things in your, in your daily life, not just, you know, in your practice in the dojo or in your competitive uh, match or anything like that. This is, this is yeah. where, it, you know, uh, the whole purpose of kendo is uh, how do you apply the lessons that you learn uh, into the other things that you do you know in your work or your study or whatever there's one of the really fascinating aspects of japanese budo is like um the lessons are so transferable yeah that's so awesome well i for one learned so much i had someone come into my university just teach like kendo for like one day as like a little i don't know a little try or whatever and like Obviously, I didn't get anything out of that because <laughs> one day is not going to do anything for me. But man, this was so educational. I, I loved every minute of this conversation. This was probably one of my favorite episodes of the season. I have a feeling I learned so much. And I know, Doug, even though, you know, you already have done kendo, I'm sure you've had fun talking no, about this. I, I'm chomping at the bit. I wish I could ask. I wish I had more time to ask more questions and pick your brain on stuff because I had... <laughs> A lot more technical stuff I want to touch on, but like I said, because we ended up here, doesn't mean necessarily that we can't do another episode in the future on martial arts. So if yeah. we do, we'll have to reach out and uh, <laughs> be happy to catch up again. Yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah, we would love that. Well, before we officially wrap up, I want to give you that opportunity to promote anything that you want to promote, whether that's any of your books that you'd like anyone to like really read to get the sense of the do, the way, or, you know, whatever else you have going on. I know uh, you're really, like you said, you're in with Kendo and I think you, there's a YouTube channel, right? That, that people can kind of watch some Kendo matches and kind of really get a feel for it. Yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff going on at the moment and uh, now we're, uh, we're getting out of the um, the COVID hangover stage, um, <laughs> trying, to, trying to get everything back up and running, and trainings going, you know, full blast again. But um, maybe if your listeners are interested, um, just at the moment we're just creating a homepage, which is uh, um, featuring all the books that I'm involved with, um, either translating or writing or editing or or colleagues have written and we're sort of building the site at the moment if, if you're interested in checking it out it's called uh, Budo Books that's one word B-U-D-O-B-O-O-K-S dot J-P and if you want to check that out and, um, we've got you know basic information about martial arts on there and uh, we're building a, a big library of, um, of books that uh, may be of interest to your oh, listeners fantastic well make sure we link that in our I show notes yeah <laughs> That's, that's awesome. And well, if you're ever going to be in New Orleans and you bring your kendo stuff, I'll have to pull mine out of the attic. And, oh, he uh, <laughs> would tear you up, dog. Oh, I, I know. I'm not, I have up. no doubt about it. No it's doubt about, about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'd be, it'd be fun. It'd be fun. And then we'll get a couple beers after. Right, exactly. <laughs> and I got the dojo we could practice in. I'll show you. I'll, I'll yeah. take you there. Awesome. <laughs> I look forward to that. Seriously. It'll be great. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on and helping us and our listeners understand Kendo just a little bit better. I'm really looking forward to this episode. I think they're going to get a lot out of it. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you for asking me. It was, it was a great pleasure. Yeah, thanks. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Crew of Japan podcast. And a very special thank you to Alexander Bennett for joining us today to discuss the world of kendo. I don't know about you, but this episode was pretty motivational for me. So many things that Alex shared with us today resonated deeply within me in so many different ways. Some of the things he said I have heard throughout my martial arts journey, day after day after day, and even to this day, I still hear it at Shogun Martial Arts Dojo here in Metairie every week. It may not be kendo that we're practicing. The concept of things always coming back to fundamentals, regardless of a person's level, makes me want to go outside and hammer out hundreds of men, do, and kote strikes right now. Except it's like 100 degrees at 9 p.m. at night when I'm recording this, so I'm not going to do that. If you're interested in learning more about martial arts from Alexander Bennett, well, we got you covered. Check out one of his many books on kendo and other martial arts. We'll have some of them linked out in the show notes. Also, if you are in the New Orleans area and are interested in learning about sword-based martial arts like kendo or kenjutsu, you have options. Shogun Martial Arts for Kenjutsu here in Metairie, where I practice and help instruct, as well as the New Orleans Kendo Club. I'll link out both of them in the show notes. Have you ever practiced a martial art? What did Alex say that resonated with you? Share with us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, still Twitter to me, TikTok, YouTube, wherever else we are, at Crew of Japan Podcast. That's K-R-E-W-E-O-F-J-A-P-A-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Just type that in wherever you go. You'll find us. If we're not there, let us know. Maybe we'll set something up. We just joined LinkedIn, so trust me, we're ready to join. While you're there, give us a follow, like, retweet, repost, share, whatever floats your boat. Let us know how you're enjoying the podcast. Or perhaps you prefer to provide your feedback in a more private setting. Send us an email at crewofjapanpodcast at gmail.com. One more time, K-R-E-W-E-O-F-J-A-P-A-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Speaking of feedback, if you're enjoying what you're listening to right now, please feel free to leave us a five-star review or rating on your favorite podcast streaming app. Only takes a second. Every one of those five-star ratings and reviews helps others interested in Japan and this kind of content find the podcast. And I'm 100% sincere when I say that any and all support is incredibly appreciated. But that's it for today. Until next time.